Chapter 11 of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Chapter 11 Events in and around Washington. Ball's Bluff. Harper's Ferry. Stanton's Trick. Enemy's Batteries on the Potomac. On the 9th of October, McCall's division marched from Tennelly Town to Langley on the Virginia side of the Potomac. This addition to the forces already there enabled me to push reconnaissances more actively, and as it was particularly desirable to obtain accurate information in regard to the topography of the country in front of our right, General McCall was ordered to move on the 19th as far as Drainsville, to cover the work of the topographical engineers directed to prepare maps of that region. On the 20th, General Smith pushed out strong parties to Freedom Hill, Vienna, Flint Hill, Peacock Hill, etc., with a similar object. From his destination, General McCall sent the following dispatch. Drainsville, October 19, 1861, 6.30 p.m. To General McClellan, I arrived here this morning. All is quiet. No enemy seen. Country for one mile beyond Difficult Creek, broken and woody. Bad country to maneuver. Nothing but skirmishing could be done by infantry. Artillery could not leave the road. One mile beyond Difficult Creek, the country becomes open. Some pretty battlefields. Country high. I shall bivouac here tonight. Park is with me. Signed, George A. McCall. He remained near Drainsville during the whole of the 20th, covering the operations of the topographical engineers. On the morning of the 21st, he sent me the following dispatch. Camp near Drainsville, Virginia. October 21st, 1861, 6.30 a.m. Major General George B. McClellan, General, in a couple of hours we shall have completed the plain table survey to the ground I first occupied one and one-half miles in front, and by odometer or by observation, all the crossroads this side of the point where we met General Smith's parties, from the Alexandria Pike to the L&H Railroad, and the more northern ones from the Pike to the river. On the return march, the plane table will be at work on the Leesburg and Georgetown Pike, and the side roads to the river will be examined. Very respectfully, George A. McCall, Brigadier General. On the 12th of October, General Stone telegraphed that he thought the enemy were entrenching between Conrad's Ferry and Leesburg, about one mile from the town. In the morning of the 13th, he telegraphed that the enemy had strengthened their force opposite Harrison's Island by one or two regiments from below and that much work was going on in the way of new batteries and lines, and strengthening old ones. At night, on the same day, he telegraphed that work had been done at Smart's Hill, that the pickets near Mason's Island were largely reinforced, and that he anticipated an early attempt by the enemy to secure Mason's or Harrison's Island, perhaps both, but probably the latter, commanded as it was by the bluffs on their side. On the 15th, he telegraphed that there was considerable movement between the river and Leesburg, apparently preparations for resistance rather than attack. On the 18th, at 10.45 p.m., he telegraphed that the enemy's pickets were withdrawn from most of the posts in our front, that he had sent an officer over the river within two miles of Leesburg the same evening, and that he should push the reconnaissances farther the following day if all remained favorable. Such was the state of affairs when, on the morning of the 20th, I received the following telegram from General Banks' headquarters. Darnstown, October 20th, 1861. Sir, 
the signal station at sugar loaf telegraphs that the enemy have moved away from leesburg all quiet here r m copeland assistant adjutant general general marcy whereupon i sent to general stone at poolesville the following telegram camp griffin october twentieth eighteen sixty one general mcclellan desires me to inform you that general mccall occupied drainsville yesterday and is still there We'll send out heavy reconnaissances today in all directions from that point. The general desires that you will keep a good lookout upon Leesburg to see if this movement has the effect to drive them away. Perhaps a slight demonstration on your part would have the effect to move them. A.V. Colburn, Assistant Adjutant General. Brigadier General C.P. Stone, Poolsville. Deeming it possible that General Call's movement to Drainsville, together with the subsequent reconnaissances, might have the effect of inducing the enemy to abandon Leesburg, and the dispatch from Sugarloaf appearing to confirm this view, I wish General Stone, who had only a line of pickets on the river, the mass of his troops being out of sight of, and beyond range from, the Virginia bank, to make some display of an intention to cross, and also to watch the enemy more closely than usual. I did not direct him to cross, nor did I intend that he should cross the river in force for the purpose of fighting. The above dispatch was sent on the 20th, and reached General Stone as early as 11 a.m. of that day. I expected him to accomplish all that was intended on the same day, and this he did, as will be seen from the following dispatch, received at my headquarters in Washington from Poolesville on the evening of October 20th. Made a feint of crossing at this place this afternoon, and at the same time started a reconnoitering party towards Leesburg from Harrison's Island. The enemy's pickets retired to entrenchments. Report of the reconnoitering party not yet received. I have means of crossing 125 men once in 10 minutes at each of two points, river falling slowly. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General, Major General McClellan. As it was not foreseen or expected that General McCall would be needed to cooperate with General Stone in any way, he had been directed to fall back from Drainsville to his original camp near Prospect Hill as soon as the required reconnaissances were completed. Accordingly, he left Drainsville on his return at about 8.30 a.m. of the 21st, reaching his old camp at about 1 p.m. In the meantime, I was surprised to hear from General Stone that a portion of his troops were engaged on the Virginia side of the river, and at once sent instructions to General McCall to remain at Drainsville if he had not left before the order reached him. The order did not reach him until his return to his camp at Prospect Hill. He was then ordered to rest his men and hold his division in readiness to return to Drainsville at a moment's notice, should it become necessary. Similar instructions were given to other divisions during the afternoon. The first intimation I received from General Stone of the real nature of his movements was in a telegram as follows. Edwards Ferry, October 21st, 1110 a.m. The enemy have been engaged opposite Harrison's Island. Our men are behaving admirably. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General. Major General McClellan. At 2 p.m., General Banks' adjutant general sent the following. Darnstown, October 21st, 1861, 2 p.m. General Stone safely crossed the river this morning. Some engagements have taken place on the other side of the river. How important is not known. R. M. Copeland, Acting Assistant Adjutant General. General R. B. Marcy. General Stone sent the following dispatches. Edwards Ferry, October 21st, 1861, 2 p.m. There has been sharp firing on the right of our line, and our troops appear to be advancing there under Baker. The left, under Gorman, has advanced at skirmishers nearly one mile. 
and if the movement continues successful, we'll turn the enemy's right. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General, to Major General McClellan. Edwards Ferry, October 21st, 1861, 2.20 p.m. To General Marcy, we cross at Edwards Ferry in flatboats. These which we have built, capacity 45 men each, and in one canal boat, capacity 200 men, at Harrison's Island in four flatboats and four rowboats. There is a road from Seneca to Edwards Ferry, and from Edwards Ferry to Leesburg, also a road from opposite Seneca to the Leesburg Road. The mounted men will be held in readiness, firing pretty heavy on our right. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General. This was in reply to an inquiry as to his means of crossing, and the roads also directing him to hold mounted men ready to transmit frequent reports. Edwards Ferry, October 21st, 1861, 4 p.m. Nearly all my forces across the river. Baker on the right, Gorman on the left. Right sharply engaged. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General, to General McClellan. Edwards Ferry, October 21st, 1861, 6 p.m. Have called on Banks for a brigade, and he has ordered up Hamilton's. I think it would be well to send up a division on the other side of the river. I think they have been reinforced. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General. The nearest division on the Virginia side, McCall's, was more than 20 miles from the scene of action, so that it could not have arrived before noon of the 22nd, too late to be of any service. Moreover, its line of march would have passed not more than 11 or 12 miles from the enemy's position at Centerville, and it would thus have been exposed to be cut off, unless supported by a general movement of the Army of the Potomac which there was nothing to justify, according to the information at that time, 6.30 p.m., in my possession. The orders I have already sent to Banks seemed best adapted to the case, as the event proved. Edwards Ferry, October 21st, 1861, 6.45 p.m. To Major General McClellan. Colonel Baker has been killed at the head of his brigade. I go to the right at once. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General. General Stone was evidently misinformed, as Colonel Baker had only one battalion of his brigade with him. Edwards Ferry, October 21st, 1861, 9.30 p.m. To General McClellan, I am occupied in preventing further disaster, and tried to get into position to redeem. We have lost some of our best commanders, Baker dead, Cogswell a prisoner or secreted. The wounded are being carefully and rapidly removed and Gorman's wing is being cautiously withdrawn. Any advance from Drainsville must be made cautiously. All was reported going well up to Baker's death, but in the confusion following that, the right wing was outflanked. In a few hours I shall, unless a night attack is made, be in the same position as last night, save the loss of many good men. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General. Although not fully informed of the state of affairs, I had, during the afternoon, as a precautionary measure, ordered General Banks to send one brigade to the support of the troops at Harrison's Island, and to move with the other two to Seneca Mills, ready to support General Stone if necessary. The 9.30 p.m. dispatch of General Stone did not give me entire understanding of the state of the case. Aware of the difficulties and perhaps fatal consequences of attempting to recross such a river as the Potomac after a repulse, and from these telegrams supposing his whole force to be on the Virginia side, I sent the following telegram. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, October 21st, 1861, 10.30 p.m. To General C.P. Stone, Edwards Ferry. Entrench yourself on the Virginia side and await reinforcements, if necessary. 
George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. Shortly after, the following. To General C.P. Stone, hold your position on the Virginia side of the Potomac at all hazards. General Banks will support you with one brigade at Harrison's Island and the other two at Seneca. Lander will be with you at daylight. George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. P.S. Change the disposition of General Banks' division, if you think it necessary, so as to send two brigades to Harrison's Island instead of one. About the same time, I sent the following. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, October 21st, 1861, 10.45 p.m. To General N.P. Banks, push forward your command as rapidly as possible and put as many men over the river to reinforce General Stone as you can before daylight. General Stone is directed to hold his command on the Virginia side of the Potomac at all hazards, and informed that you will support him. You will assume command when you join General Stone. George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. The following dispatches were next received. Edwards Ferry, October 21st, 11 p.m. To Major General McClellan. We hold the ground half a mile back of Edwards Ferry on Virginia shore. Harrison's Island has parts of 13 companies, only 700 men, and will soon be reinforced by 100 freshmen, besides what support Hamilton brings. I cover the shore opposite this with guns, and am disposing others to help the defense of Harrison's. I think the men will fight well. Entrenchments ordered this morning. C.P. Stone, Brigadier General. Headquarters, Seneca Mills, October 21st, 11 p.m. To General McClellan. Arrived here at nine and a half o'clock. General Stone telegraphs for whole division immediately. Colonel Baker is killed, and some trouble exists on his right. We go at once. N.P. Banks, Major General Commanding Division. Hamilton's brigade arrived at midnight, and General Banks, with the remainder of his division, reached Edwards Ferry at 3 a.m. on the 22nd. He found General Stone on the Maryland side, and reported that he ascertained that at no time had more than one-third of his, General Stone's, troops crossed. Assuming command, and consulting with the generals present, he telegraphed to me the facts, and received a reply directing him to send over men enough to hold the opposite side, with orders to entrench themselves, all of which was done. During the afternoon there was a skirmish, in the course of which General Lander was wounded. Meanwhile, General Banks had collected all the canal boats to be found, in order to increase the means of transportation. I reached Edwards Ferry during the evening of the 22nd, and assumed command. Passing through Poolsville, I first learned the actual condition of affairs and the details of what had occurred, and sent the following. Poolsville, October 22nd, 5.30 p.m. To President Lincoln. From what I learned here, the affair of yesterday was a more serious disaster than I had supposed. Our loss in prisoners and killed was severe. I leave at once for Edwards Ferry, George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. The following extract from the evidence of General Stone before the Committee on the Conduct of the War on the 5th of January, 1862, will throw further light on this occurrence. General Stone says he received the order from my headquarters to make a slight demonstration at about 11 o'clock a.m. on the 20th, and that in obedience to that order he made the demonstration on the evening of the same day. In regard to the reconnaissance on the 22nd, which resulted in the Battle of Ball's Bluff, he was asked the following questions. Question. Did this reconnaissance originate with yourself, or had you orders from the General-in-Chief to make it? To which he replied, it originated with myself, the reconnaissance. Question. 
The order did not proceed from General McClellan. Answer. I was directed the day before to make a demonstration. That demonstration was made the day previous. Question. Did you receive an order from the General-in-Chief to make the reconnaissance? Answer. No, sir. Making a personal examination on the 23rd, I found that the position on the Virginia side at Edwards Ferry was not a tenable one, but did not think it wise to withdraw the troops by daylight. I therefore caused more artillery to be placed in position on the Maryland side to cover the approaches to the ground held by us, and crossed a few additional troops that the high wind permitted us to get over, so as to be as secure as possible against any attack during the day. Up to six o'clock I kept my intention secret, all supposing that I intended to advance on Leesburg. My object was not to discourage the command in the event of their being attacked. At six o'clock I sent to General Stone, then on the Virginia side of the river, the detailed instructions for the withdrawal of the troops during the night. Before nightfall, all the precautions were taken to secure an orderly and quiet passage of the troops and guns. The movement was commenced soon after dark, under the personal supervision of General Stone, who received the order for the withdrawal at 7.15 p.m. By 4 a.m. of the 24th, everything had reached the Maryland shore in safety. A few days afterwards, I received information, which seemed to be authentic, to the effect that large bodies of the enemy had been ordered from Manassas to Leesburg to cut off our troops on the Virginia side. Their timely withdrawal probably prevented a, a still more serious disaster. General Stone's report of this battle and his testimony before the Committee on the Conduct of the War furnish further details. General Banks' division deserves great credit for its rapid night march to the relief of General Stone. On the 24th, the total loss in killed, wounded, and missing was reported as 680, with stragglers constantly coming in. The true story of the affair of Ball's Bluff is, in brief, as follows. One of General Stone's officers, Captain Philbrick of the 15th Massachusetts, thought that he had discovered a camp of the enemy about one mile beyond Harrison's Island in the direction of Leesburg. Having completed the feint of crossing made in the course of the 20th, General Stone at 10.30 p.m. of the same day issued his orders for the surprise of the supposed camp at daybreak of the 21st. Colonel Devins of the 15th Massachusetts was entrusted with the duty, with four companies of his regiment. Colonel Lee of the 20th Massachusetts was directed to replace Colonel Devins in Harrison's Island with four companies of his own regiment, one of which was to pass over to the Virginia shore and hold the heights there to cover Colonel Devins' return. Colonel Devins was directed to attack the camp at daybreak, and, having routed, to pursue them as far as he deems prudent, and to destroy the camp, if practicable, before returning. He will make all the observations possible on the country, will under all circumstances keep his command well in hand, and not sacrifice this to any supposed advantages of rapid pursuit. Having accomplished this duty, Colonel Devins will return to his present position unless he shall see one on the Virginia side near the river which he can undoubtedly hold until reinforced, and one which can be successfully held against largely superior numbers, in which case he will hold on and report. In obedience to these orders, Colonel Devins crossed about midnight with five companies, instead of four, numbering about 300 men, and halted until daybreak in an open field near the bluffs bordering the shore. While there, he was joined by Colonel Lee with 100 men of the 20th Massachusetts, who halted here to cover his return. At daybreak, he advanced about a mile towards Leesburg, 
and then discovered that the supposed camp did not exist. After examining the vicinity and discovering no traces of the enemy, he determined not to return at once, but at about half-past six a.m. sent a non-commissioned officer to report to General Stone that he thought he could remain where he was until reinforced. At about seven o'clock, a company of hostile riflemen were observed on the right, and a slight skirmish ensued. A company of cavalry being soon observed on the left, the skirmishers were drawn back to the woods, and after waiting half an hour for attack, the command was withdrawn to the position held by Colonel Lee. But after again scouting the woods, Colonel Devens returned to his advanced position. About eight o'clock, the messenger returned from General Stone with orders for Colonel Devens to remain where he was, and that he would be reinforced. The messenger was again sent back to report the skirmish that had taken place. Colonel Devens then threw out skirmishers and awaited reinforcements. At about ten o'clock, the messenger again returned with the information that Colonel Baker would soon arrive with his brigade and take command. Between nine and eleven, Colonel Devens was joined by Lieutenant Colonel Learned with the remainder of the 15th, bringing up his command to 28 officers and 625 men. About midday, Colonel Devens learned that the enemy were gathering on his left, and about half-past twelve or one he was strongly attacked, and as he was in great danger of being outflanked, and no reinforcements had arrived, at about a quarter past two he fell back to the bluff, where he found Colonel Baker, who directed him to take the right of the position he proposed to occupy, the center and left being composed of about three hundred men of the 20th Massachusetts, under Colonel Lee, and a battalion of the California Regiment, about 600 strong. Two howitzers and a six-pounder were also in line. At about three o'clock, the enemy attacked in force, the weight of his attack being on our center and left. At about four, our artillery was silenced, and Colonel Devens was ordered to send two of his companies to support the left of our line. Shortly after, he learned that Colonel Baker had been killed. Colonel Cogswell then assumed command, and, after a vain attempt to cut his way through to Edwards Ferry, was obliged to give the order to retreat to the river bank and direct the men to save themselves as best they could. I have gone thus much into detail because at the time I was much criticized and blamed for this unfortunate affair, while I was in no sense responsible for it. Early in 1862, it was determined to attempt the reopening of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad as far eastward from Cumberland as circumstances would justify. General F.W. Lander was ordered to cover this operation from Cumberland towards Hancock, and on the 5th of January reached Hancock en route to his destination. He found Jackson on the opposite bank of the Potomac, tearing up rails, etc. Shortly after his arrival, Lander was summoned by Jackson to surrender. This, of course, was a mere act of bravado, for it is not probable that Jackson had the slightest intention of crossing the river. The enemy fired a few shells into Hancock, doing little or no damage. General Banks sent reinforcements to Hancock under General Williams, who remained in that vicinity for some time. Jackson now moved towards Bloomery Gap and Romney, whither Lander was ordered to go. The force at Romney being insufficient to hold the place and its communications, Lander was instructed to fall back to the mouth of Patterson's Creek, where he awaited the arrival of reinforcements now on the way to him. Finding it difficult to procure supplies and not venturing to attack Lander in his position, Jackson fell back from Romney to Unger's store with a mass of his force about the 23rd of January. About the 5th of February, Lander obliged him to evacuate Romney entirely. 
Lander now moved his headquarters to the Pawpaw Tunnel, from which position he covered the reconstruction of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which was reopened from the west to Hancock on the 14th of February. On the 13th, he made a very dashing attack upon a party of the enemy at Bloomery Gap, taking several prisoners and dispersing the rest. Notwithstanding the severe illness from which he suffered, Lander remained at Pawpaw, covering the railroad and keeping the country clear of the enemy, until the 28th of February, when he was ordered to move to Bunker Hill to cooperate with General Banks, then at Charlestown, covering the rebuilding of the railroad as he advanced. While engaged in preparing to execute this order, his disease assumed a more violent form, and on the 2nd of March this gallant officer breathed his last. On some occasions during this brief campaign, I was obliged to check Lander rather abruptly for attempting to assume control over troops not under his command, and for endeavoring to initiate some very rash movements when the great risk could not be counterbalanced by the very faint chances of success. These errors arose partly from inexperience, and also, no doubt, from the effects of the malady which so soon terminated his life. These occurrences did not change my feeling towards him, and I doubt whether they influenced his for me. I had often observed to the President and to members of the Cabinet that the reconstruction of this railway could not be undertaken until we were in a condition to fight a battle to secure it. I regarded the possession of Winchester and Strasburg as necessary to cover the railway in the rear, and it was not till the month of February till I felt prepared to accomplish this very desirable but not vital purpose. The whole of Banks' division and two brigades of Sedgwick's division were thrown across the river at Harper's Ferry, leaving one brigade of Sedgwick's division to observe and guard the Potomac from Great Falls to the mouth of the Monocacy. A sufficient number of troops of all arms were held in readiness in the vicinity of Washington, either to march via Leesburg or to move by rail to Harper's Ferry, should this become necessary in carrying out the objects in view. The subjoined notes from a communication subsequently addressed to the War Department will sufficiently explain the conduct of these operations. Notes When I started for Harper's Ferry, I plainly stated to the President and Secretary of War that the chief object of the operation would be to open the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad by crossing the river in force at Harper's Ferry, that I had collected the material for making a permanent bridge by means of canal boats that from the nature of the river it was doubtful whether such a bridge could be constructed, that if it could not I would at least occupy the ground in front of Harper's Ferry in order to cover the rebuilding of the railroad bridge, and finally, when the communications were perfectly secure, move on Winchester. When I arrived at the place I found the Bateau Bridge nearly completed. The holding ground proved better than had been anticipated. The weather was favorable, there being no wind. I at once crossed over the two brigades which had arrived, and took steps to hurry up the other two, belonging respectively to Banks's and Sedgwick's division. The difficulty of crossing supplies had not then become apparent. That night I telegraphed for a regiment of regular cavalry and four batteries of heavy artillery to come up the next day, Thursday, besides directing Keyes's division of infantry to be moved up on Friday. Next morning, the attempt was made to pass the canal boats through the lift lock in order to commence at once the construction of a permanent bridge. It was then found for the first time that the lock was too small to permit the passage of the boats, it having been built for a class of boats running on the Shenandoah Canal, 
and too narrow by some four or six inches for the canal boats. The lift locks above and below are all large enough for the ordinary boats. I had seen them at Edwards Ferry thus used. It had always been represented to the engineers by the military railroad employees and others that the lock was large enough, and the difference being too small to be detected by the eye, no one had thought of measuring it or suspected any difficulty. I thus suddenly found myself unable to build the permanent bridge. A violent gale had arisen, which threatened the safety of our only means of communication. The narrow approach to the bridge was so crowded and clogged with wagons that it was very clear that, under existing circumstances, nothing more could be done than to cross over the baggage and supplies of the two brigades. Of these, instead of being able to cross both during the morning, the last arrived only in time to go over just before dark. It was evident that the troops under orders would only be in the way should they arrive, and that it would not be possible to subsist them for a rapid march on Winchester. It was therefore deemed necessary to countermand the order, content ourselves with covering the reopening of the railroad for the present, and in the meantime use every exertion to establish, as promptly as possible, depots of forage and subsidence on the Virginia side to supply the troops and enable them to move on Winchester independently of the bridge. The next day, Friday, I sent a strong reconnaissance to Charlestown, and under its protection went there myself. I then determined to hold that place, and to move the troops composing Landers and Williams's commands at once on Martinsburg and Bunker Hill, thus effectually covering the reconstruction of the railroad. Having done this, and taken all the steps in my power to ensure the rapid transmission of supplies over the river, I returned to the city, well satisfied with what had been accomplished. While up the river I learned that the President was dissatisfied with the state of affairs, but on my return here understood from the Secretary of War that upon learning the whole state of the case the President was fully satisfied. I contented myself, therefore, with giving to the Secretary a brief statement, about as I have written it here. He did not even require that much of me. He was busy. I troubled him as little as possible, and immediately went to work at other important affairs. The design aimed at was entirely accomplished, and the railroad was in running order before I started for the peninsula. As a demonstration against his left flank, this movement had much to do with the enemy's evacuation of his position at Manassas on the 8th and 9th of March, and I should state that I made the movement unwillingly because I anticipated precisely that effect, and did not wish them to move from Manassas until I had fairly commenced the movement to the lower Chesapeake. But the pressure was so strong that I could not resist it, and this was no doubt the best and easiest way to force the navigation of the lower Potomac, which the administration laid so much stress upon. They had neither the courage nor the military insight to understand the effect of the plan I desired to carry out. Immediately upon my return from Harper's Ferry, I called upon the secretary and handed him the memorandum referred to in the notes just given, expressing a desire to explain the matter personally to the president. The secretary said that the president now understood the whole affair, but that he would hand him my memorandum. He told me a day or two afterwards that he had done so, and that the president was entirely satisfied with my conduct, and desired me not to mention the subject to the president. I was foolish enough to believe him, and acted accordingly. The following telegrams will aid in giving the true state of the case. Washington, February 28, 1862. General McClellan, what do you propose to do with the troops that have crossed the Potomac? E.M. Stanton, Secretary of War. 
To this I replied, Sandy Hook, February 28, 1862. Honorable E. M. Stanton, Secretary of War. Your dispatch received. I propose to occupy Charleston and Bunker Hill so as to cover the rebuilding of the railway, while I throw over the supplies necessary for an advance in force. I have quite enough men to accomplish this. I could not at present supply more. George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. On the same day, I telegraphed to the President as follows. It is impossible for many days to do more than supply the troops now here and at Charlestown. We could not supply a movement to Winchester for many days, and had I more troops here, they would have been at a loss for food on the Virginia side. I know that I have acted wisely, and that you will cheerfully agree with me when I explain. I have arranged to establish depots on that side, so we can do what we please. I have secured opening road. George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. On the same day, I telegraphed to General Lander as follows. We hold Charlestown. As soon as possible, please occupy Bunker Hill and communicate with Banks at Charlestown. Scout well towards Winchester. Push the repairs of the railway rapidly. Get free of this business. I want you with me in another direction. George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. It was a part of Mr. Stanton's policy only too well carried out, to prevent frequent personal interviews between the President and myself. He was thus enabled to say one thing to the President, and exactly the opposite to me. A few days later, on the 8th of March, the President sent for me at an early hour in the morning, about half-past seven, and I found him in his office. He appeared much concerned about something, and soon said that he wished to talk with me about a very ugly matter. I asked what it was, and, as he still hesitated, I said that the sooner and more directly such things were approached, the better. He then referred to the Harper's Ferry affair, the boats being too wide for the liftlocks, etc., upon which I found that the secretary had deceived me when he said that the president was satisfied. I told him what had passed between the secretary and myself, as related above, at which he was much surprised. He told me that he had never heard of my memorandum or of any explanation on my part. I then gave him my statement of the matter, with which he expressed himself entirely satisfied. He then adverted to the more serious, or ugly, matter, and now the effects of the intrigues by which he had been surrounded became apparent. He said that it had been represented to him, and he certainly conveyed to me the distinct impression that he regarded these representations as well-founded, that my plan of campaign, which was to leave Washington under the protection of a sufficient garrison, its numerous well-built and well-armed fortifications, and the command of banks then in the Shenandoah Valley, and to throw the whole active army suddenly by water from Annapolis and Alexandria to the forts on James River, and thence by the shortest route upon Richmond, was conceived with a traitorous intent of removing its defenders from Washington, and thus giving over to the enemy the capital and the government, thus left defenseless. It is difficult to understand that a man of Mr. Lincoln's intelligence could give ear to such abominable nonsense. I was seated when he said this, concluding with the remark that it did look to him much like treason. Upon this I arose, and, in a manner perhaps not altogether decorous towards the chief magistrate, desired that he should retract the expression, telling him that I could permit no one to couple the word treason with my name. He was much agitated, and at once disclaimed any idea of considering me a traitor, and said that he merely repeated what others had said, and that he did not believe a word of it. 
I suggested caution in the use of language, and again said that I would permit no doubt to be thrown upon my intentions, whereupon he again apologized and disclaimed any purpose of impugning my motives. I then informed him that I had called a meeting of the generals of division for that day with reference to the proposed attack upon the enemy's Potomac batteries, and suggested that my plan should be laid before them in order that he might be satisfied. This was done, and I heard no more of treason in that connection. Before leaving this subject, I will call attention to the fact that my official report contained the statement that the Secretary had assured me of the President's approval of my action when I returned from the Upper Potomac, and that this assertion was never denied. Moreover, no other statement made in the memorandum was ever denied or objected to either by the President or the Secretary. And that memorandum shows very clearly that there was no ground of dissatisfaction with my conduct, but that I did precisely what I told them I should do under given circumstances. In my official report, I have given all necessary information as to the reasons which prevented an attack upon the enemy's batteries on the Potomac. I will here repeat only that careful reconnaissances and a full consideration of the matter led to the inevitable conclusion that although we might, at a greater or less sacrifice of life, carry and destroy any particular battery, we could prevent the construction of permanent batteries and the employment of rifled field batteries only by a general movement of the army to drive the enemy entirely behind the Rappahannock and Rapidan after a general action, and that it would then be necessary to hold the lines of those rivers in force or continue the campaign by the overland route. I did not regard the inconvenience resulting from the presence of the enemy's batteries on the Potomac as sufficiently great to justify the direct efforts necessary to dislodge them, especially since it was absolutely certain that they would evacuate all their positions as soon as they became aware of the movement to the James and York rivers. It was therefore with the greatest reluctance that I made the arrangements required to carry out the positive orders of the government, and it was with great satisfaction that I found myself relieved from the necessity of making what I knew to be a false and unnecessary movement. When the enemy abandoned his position on the 8th and 9th of March, the roads were still in such a condition as to make the proposed movement upon the batteries impracticable. Before this time, I had strongly and repeatedly urged upon the Navy Department the propriety of hastening the completion of the Monitor, that she might be sent to the Potomac to try her hand upon the batteries on its banks. As the reason for this, I urged that it was well to try her qualities under fire, when necessary repairs and alterations could readily be made, rather than to send her immediately to New Orleans, as had been intended." it is a little singular that the effect of my urgency was to hasten her completion, so that she arrived at Hampton Roads in season to check the operations of the Merrimack. End of chapter 11